Merry Christmas, everyone. And to, you know, a lot of you have been asking, you know, who made that sign? That sign was made for us by a guy named Bruce Jackson, who happens to be in this service. He wouldn't want this, but we're doing it. We're saying thank you. Yeah. Thank you. If you're new here today, my name's Ann. I'm one of the pastors here at Evergreen, and it's my privilege just to have this conversation with you this morning. We've been looking forward to it. I believe that Jesus has something for each one of us every time we gather. So Adam is a precocious three-year-old whose parents have just been drilling into him that he is German, that that's his legacy. And so he gets to church and is asked, are you going to be in the Christmas pageant? And he said, yes, full pride, chest out. I'm going to be a German shepherd. (laughs) Now, I have a granddaughter, Julia, who thinks this is the way the manger really went down, okay? Because German shepherds are her favorite dogs, and she would love nothing better than for Grammy to invent that story on her behalf um, or make a story up about a German shepherd being there. But Adam did have it kind of right. There were shepherds there, and then there was a baby, Okay, and I have a picture of a baby here for you this morning. And yes, that is my first grandchild, who's now a second grader. Her name's Katie. Other pictures are going to show that aren't as attractive, so I need to do justice here this morning. Uh, But babies. Writer and cartoonist Don Harold said something I loved. He said, babies are such a nice way to start people. How many of you think that's true? (laughs) Such a nice way to start people. We grow up to be such other creatures. But, you know, we love it the way a baby can stop people on the streets and get oohs and ahs from complete strangers and elicit from very dignified adults the strangest language known to man of coos and all sorts of other, I don't know, we don't even have words for it. It's its own special language, talking to a baby. Not to mention that a baby's smile can light up a room and brighten anyone's day. And maybe... That's why we like to linger at the manger with baby Jesus. You see, the the baby Jesus is a whole lot safer than the grown-up Jesus. The grown-up Jesus wants to come and live inside of us, and that changes everything. Did you ever notice in the Christmas story, which we're not reading today, that nobody stayed at the manger? Mary and Joseph certainly did. Je- didn't. Jesus didn't stay at the manger. The shepherds didn't stay at the manger. Even the star over Bethlehem went away. Nobody stayed at the manger. Jesus' incarnation, his coming in human flesh, his birth, was never just about that manger. It was preparation for the big deal. It was preparation for a second birth in all of us. Because Jesus came not only to live with us, as Jared talked about so wonderfully last week, but he came to live in us. And the big idea today, the word that I just kept hearing from the Lord over and over again is this, don't get stuck at the manger. Jesus came to give us a second birth into his kingdom, a a new life not just an addition to our life, a transformed life, a life with power and with an eternal future, a destiny for each one of us that goes on and on. And the manger was simply the humble beginning for so much more that God has for us. So don't get stuck at the manger. 
There's four things that I'd like to do with you today, and then we'll do something together at the end, communion. The first is this. I want to read a story um, in three parts to you about a guy who did not quite get who Jesus was and why he was here. He had his ideas about that, but they weren't quite on spot. Secondly, we want to talk about the real reason Jesus came. Thirdly, we want to discover how a person can be born again. Now, see, Jesus was the one who first uttered those words, but our culture has co-opted the born-again phrase, and it's come to take on all sorts of other meanings and political overtures and things like that. They've co-opted it in a way that sometimes tarnishes what Jesus really intended there. Thirdly, we want to identify what happened, or fourthly, what happens in us when we're born again. And when we're done talking about those things, we're going to take communion together in small groups, and we're going to think about where's our relationship with Jesus at right now? We don't want to miss him. So first of all, Jesus rocks this guy named Nicodemus's world with what I call a come-to-Jesus talk, only this talk is a literal come-to-Jesus. Now, how many of you have ever used that term? I'm having a come-to-Jesus talk with him, her, often a child, okay, uh, of ours, um, but it uh, can also be somebody at work, um, it, you know, it just depends. But this was a literal come-to-Jesus talk. And we're going to read from John 3, verses 1 through 15, but we're going to take it in three parts. So let's take a look at the first two verses. Now, there was a Pharisee, a man named Nicodemus, who was a member of the Jewish ruling council. And he came to Jesus at night and said, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher who has come from God, for no one could perform the signs you are doing if God were not with him. Let's pause here for a moment. Nicodemus was a member of the Sanhedrin, which means that he was older, rich, educated, and very religious, a Pharisee to be exact, and those are the guys who had a rule for everything. They made up rules in addition to God's law. Here's the interesting thing. Nicodemus is not emotionally broken. He's not a down and outer. He's not on the outside of the social groups, but he would have been considered the ultimate insider He's the guy with the PhD from an Ivy League school with money to spare and a full social calendar. Quite a contrast to the woman that Jesus is going to meet up with in the next chapter, the woman at the well who had had five husbands and the fifth was not, she wasn't married to. Quite different. So he feels like he's already in God's family. He feels like he's already got good standing with God because he's a descendant of Abraham. So what in the world is this guy coming to Jesus for, if that's the case? Now, because Nicodemus came to see Jesus at night, some people think he was afraid of his peers, the other Pharisees, if they found out he'd come to see Jesus, but he was still curious and couldn't resist. What others think is that he was just a good political guy representing the establishment because he and some of his peers were interested in what Jesus had to say, and he wanted to hear more. Kind of like the Speaker of the House meeting with an up-and-coming politician who is attracting large crowds wherever he goes, and they're all kind of worried about it, right? So they send one person out to find out. But here's the deal. Whatever his motives, Nicodemus is interested in hearing more from Jesus. He's trying to figure him out. You see, he says, he tells Jesus that he's got him pegged as a teacher from God. What this means is he was operating with a much safer version of Jesus. 
a much safer version. And all of that was about to change. Jesus is going to rock him with a new perspective. Let's read on in verse 3 as we pick it back up. Jesus replied, very truly I tell you, no one can see the kingdom of God unless they are born again. How can someone be born when they're old, Nicodemus asked. Surely they cannot enter a second time into their mother's womb to be born. And Jesus answered, very truly I tell you, no one can enter the kingdom of God unless they are born of water and the spirit. Flesh gives birth to flesh, but the spirit gives birth to spirit. You should not be surprised at my saying you must be born again. The wind blows wherever it pleases. You hear its sound, but you cannot tell where it comes from or where it's going. So it is with everyone born of the Spirit. So Jesus uses this really interesting metaphor here, this metaphor of birth. The word birth or born is used eight times just in this few set of verses. Now, he uses several metaphors, but this is the overarching one. And he has chosen this on purpose. And I think that today we could all agree a few, about a few things on this metaphor of birth. First of all, birth is messy. And this would be my granddaughter right after she came out. I did get permission for these pictures, by the way. Birth happens to the baby. The baby can't make it happen. It's the mom who carries the extra weight for nine months of pregnancy, as my daughter well knew. It's the mom who labors for hours, okay, days too. Some of you are about to crucify me because I said hours, and you went through days. But it's the mom who labors for hours or even days. The mom who endures the pain and the bleeding. Okay, some of you are saying, that's enough detail, Anne. I don't need more of that. I come from a medical family, so we just say it like it is. The thing is, Jesus chose this metaphor on purpose because of this, folks. The pain, the bleeding, the labor, and who does the work. How about an actor picture, just for a little contrast? Is that tidier? Is that nicer? Of course. So who does all the work in giving birth? The mom does. Birth happens to the baby. And who is the mom and who is the baby in Jesus' metaphor? You and I are the baby. He is the mom. This is his point to Nicodemus. Jesus is telling Nicodemus that he must start over. New, a whole new life like a newborn baby. God coming to live in us is not an addition to our lives. It's a whole new life. And what this means is pretty profound particularly if you come with Nicodemus' mindset. Nothing that Nicodemus has done, nothing that he's accomplished, nothing that he's acquired, no title that he holds, counts in him becoming a part of God's kingdom. Not one bit of it. And this is a radical idea for anyone, but especially to a Pharisee who, as I mentioned, were the guys with the rule for everything and felt that they were in high standing with God. And an Israelite who was considered a child of God by birth. You see, Nicodemus would have said, I am a legacy child of God because of who I was born to. Perhaps you grew up in a home with Christian parents, and if you were, you are a blessed person. That's an awesome thing. But did you know that you cannot enter the kingdom of God by proxy? 
So as great as it is to have Christian parents, we have to make our own decision. We have to come. We all have to start over. That's Jesus' message to Nicodemus. Nothing that we've done counts. Nothing that we've done will get us into the kingdom of heaven. And Jesus is telling Nicodemus in particular that being a descendant of Abraham will not save you. You can't do that by proxy. You must be born again of the Spirit. And Jesus is putting all of us on notice that to enter the kingdom of God requires a rebirth and that if we want God to live inside of us, we have to start over no matter what. We all start in the same place regardless of the elements of our story, whether you're male or female, whether you are a person of high social status or you see yourself as a person of low social status, whether you make a lot of money or you don't make any at all. Those precariously housed students, they start over the same way we do. None of us are better than the other. Our ethnicity, our religious practices, our family of origin, none of it. God comes to live in us by his efforts, not ours. He is the mom, and we are the baby. So what initiates the labor for us to be born again? We must accept what he has done. We must accept what Jesus has done. And the messy birth process starts. So I, my mind goes to what Nicodemus was thinking. His mind had to be racing, and maybe his heart too. You guys ever hear news that makes you do that? Like, oh, you know, kind of hearing that you're pregnant for the first time does that, you know, because it's a mixed bag. And that's what I think Nicodemus is thinking here. This, this could be really good, and it could be really bad. And his mind is racing, maybe his heart too, and he can't really wrap his mind around what Jesus is saying. So he does something really smart, really wise here, and he asks Jesus a question. Let's continue to read in verse 9. He says, how can this be, Nicodemus asked. You are Israel's teacher, said Jesus, and you do not understand these things. Very truly, I tell you, we speak of what we know and we testify to what we have seen. But still, you people do not accept our testimony. I've spoken of you of earthly things and you do not believe. How then will you believe if I speak of heavenly things? No one has ever gone into heaven except the one who came from heaven, the Son of Man. Just as Moses lifted up the snake in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must be lifted up. That everyone who believes in him, there's our word again, believe, accept, may have eternal life in him. Okay, notice anything different here about this conversation that Jesus has versus some of his others in the Gospels? I sure did, and I want to highlight it. Nicodemus can hardly get a word in edgewise in this conversation. It's interesting. We all have hot-button topics. Any of you ever get started on those with a friend, maybe your spouse? What does it mean when we have a hot-button topic? Well, when something just, we, we don't hesitate to jump in the conversation and we feel strongly about it, it is a sign that what's being talked about is of deep conviction, that it is a deep value for us, that it's very important to us. And that's what Jesus does here. Nicodemus gets 30 words out before Jesus speaks up. Then he gets 20 words out before Jesus speaks up. And now four words. He barely utters the question and Jesus is on it. He's on top of it. You think this might be kind of important to Jesus? Absolutely. How can this be, Nicodemus asked. What's he really asking? He's saying, how can I be reborn? How can I experience what you're talking about, Jesus? 
And Jesus gives him this answer that's personally tailored for him. And well, in the next chapter, and the answer that he gives Nicodemus here, they're totally different. He takes a different angle on it. It's not because one is true and one is not, but more he tailors his responses to us to what we need to hear, what we can hear. And he does this for Nicodemus. Here's what he references. He references a story from the law or the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible. And Nicodemus is a Pharisee. He would have spent hours a day reading the scriptures. This was like the most familiar part of the scriptures to him. And he picks a very obscure story, one of many, about the time, one of the times that the Israelites, they're wandering through the wilderness and they are disobedient to God. And what are they disobedient? And they get punished and they get forgiven. And it's, it, the story is told in Numbers 41, but I want to recount it for you. The story is of the Israelites grumbling because they're still in the wilderness. And they're grumbling not just about the journey, but they're grumbling about their leader, Moses. And God sends some venomous snakes among them. Sounds crazy, but a plague of snakes. And these snakes, when they bit them, people were dying all over the place. And the people cry out to Moses and tell him, please talk to God and, and save us from this. So Moses talks to God, and God says, take this bronze serpent, replica of a serpent, and mount it to a pole and hold this up. And when the people look at it, the venomous snake bites will not have an impact. So Moses did this. And the people responded. They still had to do something. They had to look up at the bronze snake. They had to follow what he'd given them to do. And the plague was stopped. Well, when Jesus prophesies about his own death, he uses the very same words. When I am lifted up, when I be lifted up, I will draw all men to me. And whenever he uses this phrase, he's always referring to a dual picture for us. The picture of him being lifted up on the cross. Instead of a serpent, a bronze serpent on a pole, it's Jesus on the cross. And secondly, three days later, he didn't stay on that cross. He didn't stay in the tomb. He rose from the dead. And he ascended to his Father in heaven. And so it's a reference to both of those places where Jesus is lifted up on a cross and where he's lifted up to, to be with his Father forever. And that's what's being referenced here. So what was Jesus trying to say to Nicodemus with this crazy story? He's saying, I am God's provision for the cure of your sin, and you must place your complete confidence in me, just as certainly as the Israelites needed to look up at that serpent that was lifted up, and they were no longer affected by the snake. Just as certainly you need a cure for your sin, and I am it. Not your efforts, not your race, not your religion, not your gender, not your family of origin. It is Jesus plus nothing. Now, Nicodemus has come to Jesus as a teacher from God. But Jesus says, I'm so much more. I'm so much more than that, Nicodemus. I'm Savior. I'm Messiah. I've come to save you from your sins. And when we respond to Jesus as anything less than that, we're stuck at the manger. You see, we're stuck trying to manage Jesus' presence in our life instead of receive his presence in our life. No holds barred. Accept him fully, completely for who he is and who he said he is, not the Jesus we want to craft. 
It reminded me of our favorite quote, Jared and I's favorite quote from the Chronicles of Narnia. And we, we read these out loud together. The first two years of our marriage, we decided no TV and we'd do these different things together. And one of the things we did was read that series out loud. And our favorite quote is about the lion Aslan, who is a type of Jesus Christ. He is a symbol for Jesus. And there's this wonderful quote. It says, he's not safe, but he's good. He's not safe, but he's good. That's what Jesus is saying. And when we get unstuck from the manger, that's one of the things that keeps us stuck is we're a little bit afraid of that unsafeness, that danger of the grown-up Jesus. So did Nicodemus decide to accept Jesus for who he is and be born again? We don't really know from this account in John, but we do have two other pieces of his story that give us the answer. The first is John 7, verses 50 and 51. And Jesus has caused quite a stir in Jerusalem. He's been healing people and preaching. And his preaching, as we know, it came with the, the very authority of God. So it astounded people. And the chief priests and the Pharisees are, are like, the guards, go out and bring him in. So the guards go out to where Jesus is there in the city, and they try to bring him in. But they couldn't. They came back empty-handed to the Pharisees and the chief priests. Empty-handed, no Jesus. And they said, what's up with this? Where's Jesus? And the guard said, you don't know who you're talking about. This guy, no one speaks like this man. The guards were afraid to bring Jesus in. And at this moment, Nicodemus comes to Jesus' defense with a legal argument in front of his peers, the other Pharisees. It says, Nicodemus, who had gone to Jesus earlier and who was one of their own number, asked, does our law condemn a man without first hearing him out to find out what he's been doing? At the very least, by this point in time, Nicodemus has become a sympathizer of Jesus. He's sympathetic to his cause. The final piece of Nicodemus' story recorded for us is at Jesus' death. He comes with Joseph of Arimathea to get the body of Jesus and prepare it for burial. And I want to read it to you and then comment. John 19, verses 38 through 42. Later, Joseph of Arimathea asked Pilate for the body of Jesus. Now, Joseph was a disciple of Jesus, but secretly because he feared the Jewish leaders. And with Pilate's permission, he came and took the body away. He was accompanied by Nicodemus, the man who earlier had visited Jesus at night. Nicodemus brought a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about 75 pounds. Taking Jesus' body, the two of them wrapped it up with spices in strips of linen. This was in accordance with Jewish burial customs. At the place where Jesus was crucified, there was a garden. And in the garden, a new tomb in which no one had ever been laid. Because it was the Jewish day of preparation for the Sabbath. And since the tomb was nearby, they laid Jesus there. So I want you to take a moment and picture this scene with me. Nicodemus and Joseph, two old guys, both rich and pretty important in their own culture, wrap the body of Jesus together, and lay it in the tomb. And in my mind, I think about what was Nicodemus thinking as he took those linen strips of cloth and those 75 pounds of spices and began to wrap Jesus' body as it lay there. 
What did he think when he went to wrap the hands that were pierced by the nails? What was going through his mind as he was wrapping Jesus' trunk and saw where the sword had been thrust in his side? What was he thinking if they turned him on his back to get the strips completely around and saw all the wounds from the beating that Jesus had taken? You know, maybe he was remembering Jesus' words that first night in the conversation they had. No one can enter the kingdom of God unless they are born again. Maybe he remembered the birth that Jesus was the mother, that we are the baby, that it's the mother who goes through the pain and the bleeding and the labor. Perhaps he was thinking about the people who had been set free by, by Jesus over the weeks and the months and the several years that Jesus had been doing his itinerant ministry, amazing miracles. Maybe some of those went through his mind, but maybe he thought about how this week had started. That just a week ago, Jesus had entered the city on the backs of a young donkey to the acclaim to the praise of the crowds who were shouting, Hosanna, or the Lord saves. And now he's dead here in front of him. Maybe, like Jesus' closest followers, though, he was wondering, what happens now? You weren't supposed to die. Two old rich men wrap the body of Jesus, a job generally reserved for women in that culture. Not only that, they'd had to go public to do this because they had to get permission from Pilate himself. No longer could Nicodemus be in the shadows about what he thought about Jesus because, believe me, there were plenty of rumors swirling in the culture, in Jewish culture, about what had happened that day. And this only joined those. The rumors would have been flying thick and fast. Did you hear a Pharisee showed up to dress the body of Jesus? His peers would have certainly found out. We don't know the exact timing of Nick's rebirth, but we do know that he listened to Jesus and accepted what Jesus had done for him. He did not get stuck at the manger, but finally was able to see the point of it all. The big picture, a second birth for every one of us who would believe Jesus would come and live inside of us. A second birth for him. So we ask the question, what happens when we are born again? We don't want to go with the culture's definition of that. We want to know what Jesus said would happen when we're born again. First of all, we have a new identity. We are God's children, forgiven and set free, and we can say no to sin. This is what Romans 6, and 23 say, but now that you've found out you don't have to listen to sin, tell you what to do, and have discovered the delight of listening to God telling you, what a surprise. A whole healed, put together life right now with more and more of life on the way. 
work hard for sin your whole life and you know what your pension is? Death. But God's gift is real life, eternal life, delivered by Jesus, our master. In Galatians 2.20, I've been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life which I live now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. Number two, when we are born again, we have changed priorities. We are kingdom people. Jesus is now in charge of our lives, as we've been talking about for many weeks. That's, this means that he suddenly gets to call the shots. It's your kingdom come, my kingdom go. That's what changed priorities is all about. Ephesians 5, 8 through 10 says it this way. For once you were full of darkness, but now you have light from the Lord. So live as people of the light. For this light within you produces only what is good and right and true. Carefully determine what pleases the Lord. Thirdly, we have the Spirit of God inside of us, empowering us to become more like Jesus. Birth is just the beginning. We get to grow up to become more and more like him. I don't know about you, but I have to look back. This time of year, I tend to look back and say, Lord, have I grown? Am I more like you now than I was three months ago? I need help that way. Sometimes I need help seeing that. I can be hard on myself. But the promise here is that we are with the spirit inside of us. 2 Corinthians 3, 16 through 18. But whenever someone turns to the Lord, the veil that's been over their eyes where they couldn't see who he was is taken away. For where the Lord is, the spirit, for the Lord is the spirit, and wherever the spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. So all of us who have had that veil removed can see and reflect the glory of the Lord. And the Lord, who is the Spirit, makes us more and more like him as we're changed into his glorious image. There is an Irish proverb that I love because I think it's what one of the things that Jesus was letting Nicodemus know. It's this, you've got to do your own growing no matter how tall your grandfather is. It's this, we can't grow by proxy either. But God's spirit inside us does it for us. He does all the work. He does the hard stuff. Fourthly, we have the power to defeat the enemy. The enemy of our souls, the one that Jesus said has come to steal, kill, and destroy in your life. Whatever he touches, whatever he can convince you of. He attempts to derail us, to destroy us, and to wreck wreak havoc in our lives. His primary strategy is always lying and getting us to believe those lies. John 8, 44 says he is the father of lies and he is a liar by his very nature. And we have the power when we are born again to overcome the enemy. Here's what it says in 1 John 4, 4. Dear children, you are from God and have overcome them because the one who is in you is greater than the one who is in the world. The good news this morning is that Jesus meets each one of us wherever we're at, just like he did in Nicodemus. Not the baby Jesus. The baby Jesus was a beginning. The grown-up Jesus. The whole reason he came was to forgive us and give us the opportunity for a whole new life not an addition to our house, not an addition to our life, but a whole new life, a second birth.
So yesterday I was driving on the freeway, and in front of me was a big truck. It was one of those 1-800-got-junk trucks. Anybody ever see those? Well, they had this logo on the back of their trucks, and it was great big there in front of me. I got to stare at it. It says um, that they are the largest junk removal service in the world. And you know what went through my mind? Not... (laughs) Jesus is the largest junk removal service in the world. He removes the junk from our lives. He's committed to removing the junk from every person on planet Earth's life. That's why he came. He's the only one who could do it. And he went through a lot of pain and blood and suffering to accomplish it. So how does someone get stuck in the manger? When Maybe you're like me and you've been walking with Jesus for many years, or maybe it's for a few. When we refuse to let Jesus do what only Jesus can do, only Jesus can save. I know some of you out there have people dearly loved to you that you want to see come to Jesus this holiday season. There's people that you're going to bring to Christmas Eve and you're praying that they will come to know Jesus. But did you know that that's what we get to do? We invite, we love, we share, but we can't save them. I had to learn that very early on with my dad. And God had to tell me, it's not up to you, Anne, because he's the mother and we're the babies. But here's the confidence. God does the work and he is a good savior. And he cares about the people we love and know and care about in more, even more than we do. So we do not need to step in and get in his way with the people we love. Part of staying out of the manger and not getting stuck is to not refuse God what only God can do. To really believe him for that. Another one is to let him come and forgive us for our latest stupid acts. How many of you had any of those this last week? (laughs) You know, I had to ask him to forgive me. It's available like that. That's one of the ways we stay out of the manger and really deal with the grown-up Jesus who's come to forgive us. When we're willing to pray, not just your kingdom come, but my kingdom go, then we've gotten out of the manger when I refuse to let what Jesus has done on the cross be enough, and instead I try to add to it, I'll tell you how I do it, how it works with me, because I'm kind of a performer, high producer type of person in my mind, a driven person. It's when I'm feeling good about myself because of something that I'm feeling good about my relationship with God because of something I've done instead of what he's done. You see, my status really never changed with him. It's not going up and down. It's not a roller coaster. He's committed. He loves us. He knows us. It's us that goes up and down whenever we move away from him being enough and try to make ourselves enough. Finally, when we refuse to acknowledge that he's Savior of the world, come to save us from our sins, instead of making him who he really is, Savior of the world, and we miss out on his goodness in our lives. So my question for all of us this morning is, where's your relationship with God? 
First of all, do you have questions about God? Maybe you're still exploring who he is and you'd like to talk with a pastor or a small group leader. You know what you can do? You can grab that connection card out of the seat pocket in front of you right now and you can write on there, I'd like to meet with a pastor or I'd like to talk to somebody about this and we'll help connect you this week. We'll contact you. Set something up that works in your schedule for that. Secondly, is today your day to get right with God, to be born again by Jesus' definition? You're recognizing that he did the work, and it's your day to say yes, to accept. I invite you to do that by whispering to him, even as we sing this next song. And then write that on your connection card, and again, we'll connect with you and talk with you or catch us in the lobby. Or maybe it's the person who brought you that you'd like to talk to about that. And thirdly, where have you been stuck at the manger this past week trying to manage Jesus' presence in your life instead of receiving it, what he's done for you? We're going to sing and worship him for the next several minutes. And in this first song, the ushers are going to come down now, and they're going to pass the communion And the elements of the bread, which stands for that broken body that Nicodemus was wrapping that night, and the blood represented by the juice, I'm going to ask you to hold on to those elements until we've all received them, and then we'll give you your next instructions.